Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, CEO of Black Hall Studios in Atlanta, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Why does a busy Hollywood studio do a podcast, you might ask? Black Hall is home of great movies like Jumanji The Next Level and fan-favorite series like HBO's Lovecraft Country. But for me, hosting a podcast is an amazing way to meet people and to connect to the community. I learn from each interview and from each person. My roots are actually in America's heartland. My mother's from Nebraska, my father's from Missouri. And though some folks might think I've gone Hollywood, I'm now just an Atlanta boy who loves to meet new and interesting people. And yes, some of them will just happen to be famous Hollywood types. I'm a dad, a businessman, I live on a farm out in social circle and I love the peace and quiet there, but I also love to learn about the philosophy of human nature. So why a podcast? That's why. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I appreciate you. Who can tell you what the difference is between intelligence and wisdom? I know someone. Mr. Sanjay Segal, that's who. As CEO of MSYS Technologies, Sanjay Segal is one complex guy. From technology entrepreneur to global businessman to startup advisor, keynote speaker, philanthropist, self-proclaimed heartful human, meditation instructor, and self-development enthusiast, Sanjay Segal is part of his own self-development journey. We cover a lot here on this podcast, so pay attention. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today, we are fortunate to have Sanjay Segal, CEO of MSYS Technologies. He's a multi-talented person, philosophical mind and soul. Sanjay, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan, for having me today. We were joking earlier that your last name is spelled S-E-H-G-A-L, but it's pronounced Segal as in Steven Segal. And what did you tell me? I said, well, I'm the better looking cousin <laughs> of Steven Seagal. That's a fantastic response, by the way. Tell us a little bit about your career, and then I want to ask you a bunch of questions about the role of character in business. Sure. Ryan, uh, you know, I have been in the industry, in the technology industry for about 30 years. Though I spent, uh, you know, first few decades of my life uh, in India, that's where I did. I grew up and I did my studies there. But then I came here in early 90s uh, as part of my professional journey. And I've been here since then. And incidentally, majority of the time, uh, I would say 99% of uh, the time away from India has been in, uh, in Atlanta. So now this is home, and uh, as part of this professional journey, I, uh, I you know, I, I I worked for a few companies, technology companies, and then I got into the entrepreneurial journey, and then I have done few startups here in town, and currently I'm running this MSYS Technologies. I think like I saw you had trouble pronouncing that name, and that is by design, so that you will never forget that name now, <laughs> MSYS. 
Technologies. That's the name of the company that we run. I run. I I had founded that few years ago, and I it is uh, we have about thousand employees worldwide, including an office in Atlanta, and uh, in 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 California, and several places in India. And but besides that, I mean, there is a second facet to my journey that also started around the same time when I landed here in Atlanta, and that was uh, the journey of self development or meditation. I took up a practice of heartfulness meditation uh, more than 29 years ago, and I have been practicing since then. And I also uh, teach that meditation free of, you know, without charging anything to anyone who is interested. And we have thousands of people that uh, have been trained in that. And that, I feel, is something that comes from my heart. And so I, I think there, there's a very popular book people, uh, ta- or I have also read in case you haven't read, you should. It's called The Monk Who Sold uh, Ferrari, Sold His Ferrari. I consider myself a monk who still kept his, who still has, who has kept his Ferrari. Uh, because I think as part of this journey, I feel it's not necessary for you to sell your Ferrari or sell any uh, material belongings that you have. But important thing is not be attached to it. And I think that's the that's teaching that uh, is basis of meditation that I practice and I teach. And it has been a great uh, journey of, uh, I would say, giving back to the society or giving back to the, the place that I live now and, and, and also take other fellow travelers along with me in this uh, journey of life. Give me the 60-second version of a teaching of meditation. In a 60 seconds, meditation is a journey of mind to the heart. Someone once said, longest 18 inches you would ever travel in your life. The head to the heart. And that's the journey of meditation. All our existence has been in acting, reacting, focusing, analyzing everything that is related to our mind. We have to go to our heart. Passion, compassion, you know, qualities like that, love. Those are the things that we need to learn. So I have this working theory that I've mentioned on this podcast before that the most important information that we can gather is the information that our body is giving us from the neck down. Absolutely. How, how, do, how would you try to explain that notion to our listeners? See, one of the thing, one of the benefits of meditation that uh, many scientists have proven, they call it, it gives us the ability of divergent thinking, which means being able to analyze all the millions of possible permutation and com- combinations in any given situation and spit the result. Some people call it intuition, others call it gut feeling. I will go with the voice of the heart. And that too, when you say neck down, the body is giving you signals. Those are coming from the heart. Now, scientists have also proven that there are many nerve centers. And in fact, the most important nerve centers, they are in your heart. So heart gives you the signal every time you're doing something wrong. Heart doesn't tell you Your heart will be normal when things are right. But heart will be the first one to give you, give its presence felt if you're doing something wrong. Try yelling at someone. 
tried telling something that is not a lie. I mean, not a truth, sorry. Try telling something that is not a truth. You will feel something in your heart. And you may have heard that many of the lie detector tests, they use that. And of course, people have learned to fake it now because then when you anything that, you know, that is a, a signal reading can be dodged as well. But the positive way, if you want to learn something good in your life, learn to listen to the voice of your heart. The voice of the heart, how does that begin to impact your brain? Brain, if you are a student of meditation, you will soon find that you will be better served by not listening to your brain as much as you should listen to your heart. Then your brain will become a good tool in your hands. Tool that you can change, you can uh, modify, you can use to get things done. Hmm. I've always thought of the heart, well, I shouldn't say always, in my reflections on this over the years, I've developed this theory that the heart is really our compass and the brain is just a calculator. Perfect. I mean, that's, I, I love that. If you don't mind, I would like to use it someplace. Mm. Heart is You the use cal- it wherever you like. Absolutely. And brain is the calculator. Absolutely. Right. That's a good one. Because yeah. I have to somehow get in touch with my heart enough that I can hear its voice of direction so that I can then use my brain to get wherever my heart wants to go. Absolutely. It seems to me that that's the secret to actual human happiness. There there you go. That's what I think, uh, Ryan, I I was telling you about the thing that I'm writing these days, uh, an article on uh, human intelligence versus wisdom. And that's precisely uh, is the, is the, is the crux of that uh, blog article that brain, I mean, you have to be, intelligence is more about the calculation, the analytical ability one has. Typically people associate intelligence or smartness with those things. And, you know, wisdom comes from your heart. Wisdom comes from how often you have reflected upon things and learned from the situations. People think wisdom is wisdom comes from your experience. So, which means, older you get, more you know, wiser you become. But it's not true. It's not really the quantity of experience, but the quality of experience that one has lived through. And then that comes through contemplative practices like meditation, where you learn to use your heart as a compass. What are some of the characteristics that you? imagine in wisdom that you see lacking generally in our society today? You know, there is a very popular saying that say, they say that a fool learns from his own mistakes where the wise man learns from the mistake of others. And to me, it's quite, uh, you know, quite, I mean, I mean, that says it all. I mean, you know, a fool thinks himself to be wise, whereas a wise may think of himself to be fool. I mean, that's another way of saying the same thing, right? To me, wisdom is learning from others. What you, when instead of you going through the same situation, similar situation in your life, you can learn from watching others in going through a situation like that. How do you learn from others in the heart? 
No, I think, see, the it typical, uh, typically people think of intelligence being more of data analytics. A person is analytical, has, has ability to uh, understand things, analyze things, and learn from it. Whereas wisdom is, to me, is more like reflection. You know, wisdom comes from reflecting on situations, even if whether you are going through those or even you see others going through it. Now, heart is not something, a, a, a repository of all that information. That information is always in your mind. The calculator, as you said, but heart will indicate to you right or wrong. A compass, as you said. Where do you think creativity lies? Do you think that's more brain or heart work? It's a combination. I mean, you know, you know that the life, left brain, right brain. I think, I mean, some of it, it's always the, the information re- related to creativity is always stored in the brain. But the feeling that drives that information, that gives you access to that information comes from the heart. You see something and it drives you. Where does the drive come from? It comes from the mind or the heart? To me, it comes from the heart. So where the heart settles, heart likes, heart wants you to jump. So there's an area of philosophy called virtue ethics, and I have a number of friends who are professors in this area. It's like their specialty, and what they spend all their time trying to understand is the impact of the health of the soul on the ability to think well. Beautiful. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Do you think that character has impact on intelligence? Absolutely. It has, uh, it has, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad the discussion is going in the direction that it is. I'm uh, being a, you know, a student of meditation. To me, soul is the guiding light in your life. Without realizing its presence, we cannot owe, our, owe ourselves to our own existence. I mean, to me, everything has to come from, has to emanate from, from the light of the soul. And it's nothing to do with the religious background one has. But the inner presence, to me, the heart is a window to the soul. And that's where we talk about the heart. In your experience meditating, do you believe the universe has personality? Universe has personality. Well, <laughs> philosophically speaking, the universe is beyond all the definitions of personality we can think of. But it will have a personality based on my level of consciousness at any given time. Right. That's kind of where that's where I'm going. I mean, when you're meditating, do you hear the voice of the universe guiding you, teaching yes. you, directing you? And it is, it is at that time dependent upon where I am in, in, in my own evolutionary journey. To me, meditation is a journey of evolution, evolution of consciousness. The consciousness, which in, includes your soul, includes your mind, includes your heart, that is like the all-encompassing thing that, you know, that guides you through your life, that makes you understand things as you need to yes you hear from the universe which is your inner voice and you take action based on that 
A very wise man told me one time, he said, the voice of the universe is always speaking. The question is whether or not your soul can absorb the vibration and understand what it's saying. No, I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. I think, and that to me, that when we say your ability to absorb depends on how much evolved, evolved you are in, in your consciousness. So when you say consciousness, I hear kind of a soul state character more than like mental consciousness. Is that the way you're intending to use that word? Yes. Consciousness is, it is, it consists of your, your mind, your heart, and your soul. So yes, you can say your character. Character, consciousness is a field. Character is how you manifest it. You cannot manifest your consciousness, but through how you behave, your ethics and your morals are the manifestation of your consciousness, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah. uh, Aristotle fundamentally believed that the core of your character determined the entire existence of your of your linear life, that there was no way to escape bad character. Absolutely. You know, uh, Ryan, I, I know you are, I looked at your bio and you are a student or you have been, you have studied philosophy and you were a professor as well. Recently, uh, I, I have become friends with uh, a professor of ethics from uh, Kansas University. I don't know whether you heard of him, Dr. Clancy Martin. I don't know Clancy Martin. Okay, uh, you may want to look him up. He, he has will. a course uh, on um, thegreatcourses.com called Everyday Ethics or uh, Moral Decision Making, a great one which talks about, I think, and me and him have been having these conversations about uh, consciousness and its its manifestation through your morals and ethical ethics and hence the character and all that stuff, you know, very interesting. How do you believe that seeking character or seeking goodness or seeking soulfulness has a positive impact on your business? See, the, the times have changed now. There was a time, I, I feel, in in present time, the collective consciousness of humanity has come to a level where the leadership styles from now and in the future years have changed. If you look at, let's take an example of a company like Microsoft or Google or, I mean, or Apple even, from the autocratic style of its founders, we have come to see even bigger success in those companies through inclusive style of their leaderships. Now that to me is the result of evolving consciousness in leadership or seeking impact of that seeking in the businesses. Now I'm giving those example of those companies because those are the companies that we hear uh, about every day. But in my own business, I have seen that it has given me, I mean, when in my first startup versus what I do now, it has been difference of day and night. I mean, I, I, there was a time when I felt unless I do something, it is not done well. To a style now where I have more peaceful days and nights because I develop others to do things. And I find my happiness in their accomplishments. 
inside of your company, do you try to help develop the character of your employees or do you just try to employ people that already have a good foundational depth of wisdom? See, I, I, in fact, this, I was having discussion this morning, this discussion with my chief operating officer. I said, well, I hired everybody from the, without kind of employing any technique that I, I'm writing about now. And I'm helping them develop that character now. When I hired them, I did not look at any of those things. How do you do it now? Like, how do you begin to assess somebody's wisdom? I'm not assessing. I'm helping, helping them develop that. Well, I, I'm talking about somebody new. Let's say that you were going to hire somebody into an important role as um, an officer of a company that you were invested in or running. How might you begin to assess someone's wisdom? Sure. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, I, I actually have a, a, a recorded a video on this topic that uh, one of the first characteristics I look at is, is the person, does the person have leadership qualities? Now, leadership to me here doesn't mean, I mean, I may be hiring, let's say someone uh, as, a, as, a, as an architect where he's a single contributor, individual contributor. Is uh, not going to you know manage other, but how well he leads himself. Which means, how do I uh, read that? How, how do I assess it? You, I ask them some simple life questions, and see how they respond to that. And if they have the victim mentality, if they are going to blame others, blame the environment, blame the lack of education, lack of facilities, lack of this, lack of that, or the leadership, or the government, or this or that. I would know that this person is, does not have a good leadership quality. In my assessment, a leadership is a person, a good leader is a person who can lead his life well and who does not blame others or other situations or anything that he is not able to achieve in his life. That is one of the characteristics for me, very important one that when I hire a person now. And Beyond that, I mean, nothing. you can see that how, how, how well they have learned from their own mistakes. I mean, you know, they say a wise person will know before getting into a hole. Right? So how would they prevent themselves from getting into a hole? It's difficult to develop intuition. Sometimes it feels like you're either born with good intuition, <laughs> right? It, it, is, it is absolutely right because intuition is not a certificate. Intuition is not something brain. We get so, uh, you know, uh, attracted to what mind spits out, right? And what is written somewhere or, you know, uh, that in, intuition is a boring. I mean, it's, it's, you're right, Ryan. I mean, intuition is very boring. I mean, other than other than in movies where they said I had I felt this and something else happened and something appears and then, you know, one of those uh, uh, there are some movies about those I guess where intuition makes you manifest something in physical form. <laughs> when I talk to young people who desire to be entrepreneurs, one of the things I encourage them to do is to get to know themselves so well. And to, to listen so intently for the voice of the universe that they might be able to make decisions without data. 
Do you think that's wisdom? That is wisdom. That is absolute. Because the second part of that working theory is that we are brainwashing our MBAs into not being able to have wisdom because the only thing they know to do is crunch data. That is true. The problem with data is it's only history. Yes. And if you want to be a great entrepreneur, you need to be able to write the history. Yes. I mean, the greatest entrepreneur of all time, Newton. <laughs> the apple fell many times before Newton. Apple has been falling since then. <laughs> right? But somebody actually had the intuition to interpret it. Yes. That's right. So I think that entrepreneurship is more intuition, less data. I think data is needed. I, I, we shouldn't discount that completely in that because that will really help you position yourself properly. And, uh, you know, but I think most of it, I think even after having data, I think they, they used to say that about Einstein, uh, Ryan, that he would, anytime he got stuck in a problem, he would think 99 times. He will keep count of how many times he's going through the, going over the problem. Then he'll drop it and he'll leave it for a day. In, and that day he would swim a lot, he'll play violin a lot. And he has written in his diaries and it is, you know, answer will come to him. I completely agree with that. So it's not that he was discounting data. Data, having all the data in your system, I think, you know, you need to let the divergent thinking work. And that comes from the wise of the heart. Well, and I agree with you about you want to have all the data that you can have, but because data is inherently the past, yes. it's sometimes, well, it could be very helpful in, in making decisions about an industry that has a lot of data, not discounting that. What I'm talking about is this beautiful, these beautiful opportunities as an entrepreneur when you realize I'm making decisions about a space that nobody's made decisions like this about before. And so right. there is there is no data. There is no data, absolutely. Right? That's where the greatest opportunities lie in America today because we've taken so many of our intelligent people, given them no courses or help in trying to develop their intuitive soul, their wise heart, and then we've, and then we've sent them into the world to conduct business. Yes. Which is why when people ask me whether philosophy has had any positive impact on my business life, I tell them it's the only thing that's made the difference. Oh, very good. Yes. Because philosophy is all about the soul being in tune with actual reality. Absolutely. So what kind of practices? I mean, some, some traditions call it spiritual exercise. What kind of exercises besides meditation do you do or might you recommend for people to develop the voice of their heart? See, in this heartfulness meditation that I practice and I teach, we have three practices that we teach. One is meditation, which most of the people have heard of. But most of the people of, you know, who have heard about meditation, they think about some uh, breathing exercises or, or things like that to be, you know, clearing and things like that to be meditation. Whereas in heartfulness, 
we suggest focusing on your heart and a thought of that inner light in your heart. As I said, heart is a center or heart is a window to your soul. So through heart, you can develop that connection with your soul. How? By resting your mind on that. And that is the practice of meditation that we do every day morning. And that is something not, which sounds very simple, but not very easy. Because your mind has 60,000 thoughts or 70,000 thoughts a day. So the moment you sit for meditation and you're not trying to breathe, not trying to do any physical exercise or any kind of anything physical, you know, all those thoughts come and start bombarding you like a boiling vessel, with, you know, and uh, a steam in a boiling vessel. So they all bombarding you. So you have to learn that art of ignoring other thoughts, staying focused on the thought of that inner light in your heart and then immerse yourself in that light so that you go into the deeper levels of your own consciousness. The light and the voice that we find deep in the center of our being, do you think that's only our being or do you think there's an externality to that? That is the being which connects us to all other beings. If you go even into deeper philosophies, which I think you can, you have been echoing almost everything that I have been doing and I have been saying. So I think so nice to be talking to you. I think that externality is what connects us to everybody else. So the externality, and the reason I ask this is I experience what you're talking about and my spiritual practice, my spiritual exercises, I experience being you know bathed in light and hearing the voice of the universe that feels very distinct from my own voice. And I attribute personality to that, like the universe has feeling. Do you experience that? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, you will go through the phases, Ryan, that the, that personality will evolve over time. And I'm sure you would have experienced that too. I mean, what it's telling you today versus what it tells you tomorrow versus day after and over the years. It just changes. I agree with that. I agree with that. That's why it feels so personal and why it feels so conscious. Yes. And uh, Ryan, I did want to tell you one more thing. You asked me what other spiritual exercises. So the second exercise that I teach or I practice and I practice, that is we call it as cleaning or cleansing of the mind. And if you have heard of, you know, terms like synaptic pruning, I don't know whether you have or not. I haven't. Tell me about synaptic pruning. I mean, you know, you've heard of synaptic pruning. I mean, that all happens. The process is something that happens every night in our brain. To the clearing process that we do, it's a mental exercise. We are able to expedite that synaptic pruning of impressions or imprints of various things that we have gone through during the course of the day. Like when we're sleeping, there are certain things get, you know, I mean, get eliminated from our brain, except the memory of those. Through the clearing exercise that we teach for the evening time, you can expedite that, that process so you have less things to process at night. You sleep better and things don't get stuck with you 
things which can start controlling your behavior from today onwards they they don't stick with you forever and how do you do you do this consciously or your brain is just doing the synaptic pre- yes, you do that consciously but important thing is without thinking about any specific thing see it's it's a it's like a catch 22 you cannot remove your memory or your impression because you are in the con- in control of that impression it's like you're angry. Let's say you're angry at somebody. Now you want to you remove the impact of that anger. You cannot. When you're in anger, it's like a whirlpool. I mean, you are you are just getting sucked into it, right? I mean, we all have experienced that situation. So you cannot remove that anger while being angry. So we here we suggest that don't think about any specific thing. It's a process of auto suggestion. All imprints and impressions in me are leaving me. There, are, there is, there is, there is uh, in our uh, the, in heartfulness practice we have through the just like heart. Uh, we mentioned that you know heart has several nerve centers. There are things around the spinal cord. I mean, I'm sure you you've heard of uh, spinal cord being a very important, uh, you know, having an important place in yogic practices, right? Mm-hmm. And Around the you know your your spinal cord are the vestibules, where all these impressions or imprints are stored before they go they get kind of go into your brain. So through that we have a you know we have a process of auto suggestion that you eliminate all those as a smoke from your spinal cord area, all the impressions and impurities. Important thing is without thinking about them. Because then, then you will have, if you start thinking about them, you will become very subjective. I don't want to remove this. I want to remove this. You know, things like that. So I've been doing a, a thought experiment, which is also a spiritual exercise, in my opinion, for years about imagining being 80, which 80s doesn't feel that old. I know a lot of really fit 80-year-olds, but it's always been a it's a it's a thought experiment about my 80-year-old self. Maybe we make it my 100-year-old self, but let's just call it my 80-year-old self. And I say, "What would my 80-year-old self tell me actually matters in this situation or what would my 80-year-old self tell me actually matters in life?" What do you think your 80-year-old self or maybe you know what your 80-year-old self would tell you actually matters about life? <laughs> Very interesting, you know. Ryan, when I started meditation, I was quite young. I mean, I, as I told you, I, I've been doing it for about 28, 29 years. And at that age, the last thing one thinks about is meditation. But my motivation for doing meditation was actually when I looked at some older people in, who were part of my family, and all the time they were thinking about, you know, they were their mind was always full of regrets, things that they couldn't do. I said, I don't want to be, I don't want to grow old like this. And I, I met an older person who was full of life. I said, that's how I want to be. And he told me it's because of meditation. And I, that started my journey of seeking. It's very interesting you mentioned that. I mean, so to me, I, you know, I, I have written some, uh, some things about this living life of no regrets <laughs> you know and i think and i mean young or old i mean you can do that at any age so the theory that i have about the uh, heart being the compass 
ties into this theory about happiness that I experience, but I think is not just true for me, but I imagine it being true for everyone, which is if you can tap into the light of the universe and the voice of the universe and the voice of your own heart, which are, are different. I think, you know, the voice of your own heart is different than the voice of the universe in my experience. But if you can tap into those things and actually hear the true voice of your heart, the true longings of your heart, and you listen to those and you use them as a compass and you set out on a journey to fulfill the desires of your heart, the journey itself is joy. Man, I mean, Ryan, you're taking, you're sealing my words. That's enjoy the journey. And you don't have to wait for the destination. Absolutely, man. But yet, if you're not really deeply tuned in to what the destination you long for is, that actually steals the joy from the present. Yes. Yes. But then once you start enjoying the journey itself, you know, then even if you've reached the destination, who cares? Well, that's right. I mean, if, if you... if your deepest longing in life, like one of my deep, deep longings in life is for freedom, like true human freedom, wake up, blank sheet of paper, what am I gonna imagine my life to be? Like that is like one of my deepest heart longings. If I have to choose between submitting to the will of a tyrant and then giving up the dream of freedom, that feels like death. And so I would rather die fighting for freedom than live under the power, the abusive power of a tyrant. So that shorter life lived in rebellion against tyranny is actually more joyful than a life lived in false peace. It's absolutely right, Ryan. And I think only, I guess, uh, you know, the biggest tyrant here, philosophically speaking, is the impact of our own impressions. I mean, we don't need a tyrant ruler above us or a tyrant boss above us. We can be our, our biggest enemy here. Are you talking about the, e the ego? The ego. The, I mean, you know, in, 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 the, in my, the terminology I use, impressions here means... Uh, everything that is that includes your ego, that includes your your behavioral pattern that you have that you haven't been able to grow out of, and everything you know that kind of that makes you make uh, make you slave of itself, right? I heard a really wonderful philosophical phrase in a very odd place, which was on an NFL broadcast. And it was the right. old tight end, Tony Gonzalez, and he was talking about God knows what on these teams. But then he said this phrase that I thought was so fantastic. He said, ego has no amigo. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that good? That, need, that belongs on a hat. Ego has no amigo. How have you, how have you been able to keep your ego in check? Or, or have you been able to not listen to the voice of your ego in the midst of all the success that you've had? I think that's where when I mentioned to you about the clearing process, synaptic pruning and all, that's what it does. Over time, it removes things from you that you become slave of, whether it be guilt, whether it be your ego. I mean, your, your, I mean anything that you think 
uh, you know, is not needed in your system. So we are all used to, Ryan, doing things consciously. What heartfulness practice teaches or, or takes one through a journey of things happening to you without your knowledge. Do you have children? Yes. How old are they? I have a 24-year-old boy. He graduated recently from Georgia Tech. He's also one of the, um, I would say, a fellow meditators who has been doing it for you know, six to eight years. I think six years or so now. So you have just one son? I have just one son, yes. What are some of the involuntary prayers of your heart for your son? <laughs> it's beautiful. I think that prayer was several years ago for him to find the right path in his life. And that prayer I felt was answered when one day he asked my teacher that he wanted to learn meditation. Mm. I never had to tell him anything about it. And I think I felt that prayer was answered because he's on a path now that will, you know, guide him in anything that he does. That is a beautiful answer. I'd love to hear that. I mean, if if more parents could understand that the answer for their children could only be found inside of their own children, we might be able to guide them toward wisdom. Many times I uh, I have gone to, let's say, the some churches in town or other places, community centers, to give a talk on meditation or something. And people ask me, oh, do you, can you teach children? I say, well, I'd rather teach adults and they be the role models for their children at home. Children will automatically learn. I mean, more things people learn by watching, by observing than somebody telling them. Wordsworth believed that children were natural meditators. Yes. That in fact, their lives were actually the goal of adult meditation. Yes. Why do you think that might be true? See, the mind, I think, you know, the whole process when in our heartfulness, we talk about these impressions. We say the impressions start developing in human mind after you cross the age of four or five, when your mind, when you start developing strong likes and dislikes. We have a, actually a, a yogic point for likes and dislikes. Because everything emanates from there, likes and dislikes. A child, when he's under the age of four or five, he just listens to you. He does what you tell him to do. Your likes, what you like, he likes. His mind has not developed. So that is the best age, actually, for him to be able to focus on anything that he wants to. And then he can learn. But right, you know, once his mind starts developing, he just kind of, goes all over. Then he wants to try new things. Of course, we have to do all that. So in, in heartfulness, we suggest the meditation to be learned once you are at the age of 15 or 16. Not earlier than that, <laughs> you know? No, I think that's fair. I think, the, I think the practice of meditation requires that maturity. I think that what Wordsworth was exploring was the possibility that he observed children who had yet not been corrupted, let's say, in some way or another, or hurt or experienced trauma, but children who were born 
with a blank page of joy were deeply in tune with the light and the voice of the universe without having to seek it. Absolutely. And, you know, my teacher has, you know, he teaches that the, the best time for a soul to embark on a spiritual journey is the time of conception. Now, of course, time of conception, there is no body, there is no person to teach meditation and all that. But then it is through the parents. The mindset, the attitude of parents at the time of conception, both me and my wife, we were doing meditation prior to us meeting together and prior to us getting married. And we, we, I mean, our you know, conception of our my son happened while we were both meditators and trainers and, and all that. So even though we never talked to him about it, we don't have a place of uh, worship that he goes to, that he's taught or anything like that. Of course, he picked up these things through us, but it was kind of, he imbibed all those things, you know, just by observing us and, you know, right from the womb till he became the team, till he achieved the age of 15 or 16. That's when he wanted to do it himself. And he's a very serious meditator. The area of epigenetics suggests that the goodness and the evil of parents is genetically passed to their children. That, yeah, absolutely. I, I believe that. I think that's, that's definitely, I mean, epigenetics is the whole the attitude and everything else is part of that, right? Exactly. It's all, it's, it's somehow the, Im, the genetic imprint of virtue that yes. obviously every human has all their own choices that begin to affect their epigenetics right? Switching things. And, but all of that epigenetics is then prepared and passed in conception. Yes, absolutely. So all of that preparation that you're talking about, the soulfulness, the state of being is either something that is given to a child as a gift or a curse to be overcome. Yes. (laughs) Curse to be overcome. Yes. And you can overcome it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the beauty, right? I mean, now we I talked about Aristotle earlier. Aristotle believed that if your if your soul was sideways, that you were just completely screwed. There was no there was no recovery from a sideways soul. I don't believe that. And I, I believe that we I believe that we can heal. Yeah, I think I believe, Ryan, that and I've seen it multiple times happen in you know, in and around me, is that it's like water the journey of every soul is to move towards that universal self. Now it may go sideways, but eventually it will come around. Do you think it always comes around? It comes around. Now here, I mean, I don't know whether, have you, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you have uh, read books on past life regression and things like that, right? Uh, yeah, I have, yes. I mean, I think Brian Wees and some of those guys who have, done a lot of research in that now of course this is not as uh, as 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 solid a science as let's say some of the other things are but if you follow that school of thought i think you will know that i mean all that i mean they come around things do come around they may not be in this life maybe in next life did you grow up in the u.s i i uh, last 30 years i've been here do you consider yourself to have the perspective of 
a Westerner, a Western American, or do you feel like you have multiple um, culture, cultural experience, multiple cultural experience? I consider myself to be a guy with Western mind and Eastern heart. So as a guy with an Eastern heart, where are the places that you see in Western society where we're failing, that we can learn, that we can grow, that we're undeveloped? I think the feeling of compassion, compassion towards each other, especially more so in today's time, in the last few years, how hatred has been the overpowering thing around us, that has really been quite disturbing to me as a person with Eastern heart. Despite being in disagreement with another fellow human being, how can we hate others? Well, some things are hateable. Do you believe that the universe... Nothing is hateable, Brian. Hate is, again, a manifestation of our own inner condition. So I struggle with that. I, str- I struggle with... It may, may not be to your liking. That does, if you are hating, if you're still hating someone, it means more character development, more wisdom is needed. Nothing is so bad that you have to hate. So murder... I mean, rape, if pillage. You are, if you're a murderer, then I think I don't think we need to be talking, right? Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, no. What I mean, murder, hatred comes near murder. Hatred leads to murder. I may, I may not like you. I may not agree with you. I may not. I mean, mm-hmm. you may be this. I may be that. I may not agree with your political point of view, your social point of view, your place of. Uh, I mean, where you go to eat, where do you, how do you treat others? I mean, I may not agree with you, but that's your way. That's your level of consciousness. We all are like individual planets revolving around our own axis. So you never experience the voice of the universe expressing hate? Oh, never. Never. Uh, okay. I shouldn't say never, not in the na- last 10 years at least. <laughs> <laughs> Why I say that is because, you know, that's an evolutionary journey. I mean, was I always like that? Never. I was not always like that. I mean, I have changed over time, you know. What I was, there was a time, yes. I mean, my first startup, I, I mentioned to you that I was I was like a tyrant boss myself, an autocratic tyrant boss. But from that to now, it has been a beautiful journey. I guess what I'm getting at is you don't think that there's anything happening in the universe that the universe hates. No, the universe cannot hate. Hate is man-made. Well, I mean, I could agree that hate is man-made if we're talking about the choices or man or what create the hate. But do you think there are any choices being made that the universe grieves, the universe despises? See, one of the teachings of my master, my, teach, my teacher in meditation, Ryan, is he says, and now here we will use the term God and universe, you know, as a synonym. Let's me, let me use the word universe. He says universe has no mind. So there is no duality in universe. There is no good or bad. In universe, everything is. Now, how we interpret what we feel from the universe, what we hear from the universe, is as we discussed earlier, is based on our level of consciousness. So we have the duality. As long as we have the duality, we will have all these. We'll have good, bad. Love, hatred, right? We have all those. The universe by itself is, it has no mind. There is no duality in the universe. 
or else why would universe have that why would universe create human beings who have that why would the universe create beings that have something that the universe does not yes we universe has not created we have created universe has given us the mind to be able to choose so we choose hatred how many people are able to talk like me and you and talk about things universe has taught us or not taught us and all that right it's unfortunately yeah it's very few hey you may have heard ignorance is bliss another way of achieving bliss <laughs> awareness is bliss and so is ignorance <laughs> <laughs> well i can't imagine finding bliss in ignorance because you have seen the path of awareness that's right that's a, the path of awareness is well described well, Sanjay, we could keep talking about this stuff for a long time. I've got, um, I would love to have an entire conversation with you about the being of the universe. Because when you express the idea that the being or the being of the universe just is, I have some ideas on that that might be contrary. But I would love to discuss that at greater length another time. We're, we're out of time. If people on this podcast want to get in touch with you, What's the best way to do it? Do you have social media? I have social media, Sanjay Segal. Uh, that's my name. And they, I, I'm on, on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn, on Twitter. And Sanjay at heartfulness.org is my email address. Or Sanjay at emsystechnologies.com is my email address. They can contact me via any of these means. And I... I as I mentioned earlier, I teach meditation free of charge to anyone who is interested. And I can also, I mentor or I advise many startups as well through various organizations or myself directly. People can feel free to contact me. Sanjay, the soulful work you're doing is a gift to every one of us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. It was a wonderful conversation. Very rarely I find a person who's as uh, aware about these things, uh, you know, as, as we all have been. And I think it's, it's been a delight. It has been delightful. Have a good one, Sanjay. Thank you. I'm Ryan Millsap. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Oh.